0: We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious
1: women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming
0: and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshi.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Anshe Spoke podcast. We had the greatest pleasure today talking with Kristen Neff, an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas in Austin. Kristen pioneered the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on the construct almost 20 years ago. She wrote her first book about 10 years ago called Self-Compassion, and because the research in this area has literally exploded, she wrote her second book called Fierce Self-Compassion, which is going to be released June of 2021. This book delves into this tricky balance of self-acceptance and the power to make needed change. We had a great time with Kristen. We talked about why she needed to add fierce in front of the title, self-compassion, her relationship with anger. We talked about social justice and also how to prevent burnout. Enjoy our conversation with the amazing Kristen Neff.
1: Okay. Well, welcome, Kristen, to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So, Kristen, you wrote a new book recently. Is it actually out yet? Maybe I should clarify that. It's out June 15th. Okay. It's about to come out. Yes. We're so lucky. Yeah, we got it. was great. I really enjoyed it. I really, really loved it. I have a question, though. Ten years ago, you wrote your first book. Yes. A book about self-compassion. So yes. why the need to write the second book?
2: Right. Well, so first of all, it's a lot more research now. It's 3,500 studies now <laughs> as compared wow. to maybe a few hundred when I wrote the first book. So that's part of it. We know a lot more about self-compassion. But also what I started noticing as I taught self-compassion over the years was that people confuse self-compassion with weakness. In other words, they only thought of self-compassion in terms of its kind of accepting, nurturing side, which, by the way, even that side is not a weakness. It's very important that we can accept ourselves and be nurturing and and soft and gentle. But self-compassion also has a really powerful side, and that's what the research was showing. You know, self-compassion is what helps soldiers not develop PTSD after experiencing combat, right? So in other words, this supportive kind stance to ourselves often leads to um, bravery and courage and strength and then the other thing i noticed is that we started finding out in the research that there was gender differences in self-compassion you might think that women are more self-compassionate than men because compassion is part of the female gender role but what we found actually was that women were less self-compassionate than men and that's because women are socialized to be self-sacrificing to be giving Right. In other words, women are more compassionate than men in terms of compassion to others, but less to themselves because they don't feel entitled to get their needs met. And so and I started realizing that what was happening is gender role socialization actually creates an imbalance in these fierce and tender sides of self-compassion that I like to call them, in a way that was really harmful for women, (laughs) because it means we weren't meeting our own needs. We're always saying yes to others. That was draining us. And then if you look like the Me Too movement, for instance, or the fight for gender equality, we need that fierce energy to be able to speak up and say no and demand justice. And so really, it was a book that needed to be written, and I was so happy to be able to write it. it. Really also kind of follows my own personal journey as well, which I think is not unusual. I think my journey as a woman has reflected millions of women around the globe. Somewhere,
0: I can't remember where I read it, what part of your book, but it was like, ultimately, like the book is called fear, self-compassion, but ultimately it's really about like reclaiming our power. Yes. And I love that, that that is not what you instantly think about when you read like the title, like, like self-compassion and power don't go together for me.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's the misconception. And again, that's the misconception that's really shown by the research. Self-compassion is powerful. For instance, it's a much more effective motivator than shame or self-criticism, people think that being harsh with themselves is really going to give them the power that you know that spur them on to reach their goals. Actually, what it does is it gives you performance anxiety. And it causes you to lose faith in yourself, right? Or it causes you to be afraid of taking risks. It prevents you from learning from your failures because you're so busy thinking about what a horrible failure you are that you actually don't have the mental space left over to say, "Wow, you know what can I learn from this?" And so what the research very clearly shows is that people who are more self-compassionate, when they fail, they don't take it personally. You know, everyone fails. It's part of being human. Whoever said it wasn't supposed to be to fail, you know, this is how we learn and grow. And so it's a much more productive way to deal with failure and therefore is more motivating in the long run. Sometimes I like to joke, not only is it powerful, self-compassion is a superpower right? I mean, the research is just phenomenal. It allows us to cope. It brings us well-being. It allows us to be motivated. It increases our physical health. It's linked to better body image, less psychopathology, like depression, anxiety, and stress. So we have the superpower and it's in our back pocket, right? In the sense that we already have this tool. It's not like something that's foreign. We already know how to be kind and supportive to others, right? We don't realize we can also use this power with ourselves. And once we do, it just makes a radical difference in our ability to be happy and our ability to achieve our goals and really just lead a, a more fulfilling life. Mm-hmm.
1: Kristen, as a minute ago, you alluded to the fact that your body of work is really rooted in your own lived experience. And yes. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that journey with our listeners.
2: Yeah, really. So, so both sides, both the fierce and, and the tender sides. So one of the things that I like to write a lot about is my son, Rowan, who is autistic. And that for me was, a, I think, a real defining hmm, feature of my life. I love my son to death, but to be honest, when I had a child, I wasn't assuming I would have a special needs child. I'm sure there are many of your listeners in the same boat. And luckily, thank God, <laughs> I had been practicing self-compassion for many years before I had my son. And I was just able to see how self-compassion gave me the strength to cope with my son. And not only just to cope, to, to actually learn how to embrace who he was, to form a positive relationship, to help me deal with the, some of the difficult feelings and the stresses of being an autism parent, which ultimately helped him, you know, and now you should see him. He's like 19 years old, he's driving, he's doing great. We have an amazing relationship. And so that experience helped me see really both the tender and the strong sides of compassion. So it helped me for instance, to draw boundaries. I mean, some autism parents, they give their life away to raising their son. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I devoted my life to my son. I, you know, he's my number one priority but I've always made sure that as I care for him, I also have time for myself, I also have time for my career, that I find some balance. In other words, what I've learned with my son is the more I meet my own needs, the more resources I actually have available to meet his needs. So that's one thing that happened. And then in terms of a personal story that really was impetus for this book, you might say I kind of had some experience with the Me Too movement. Luckily, it wasn't me personally, but someone I was very, very close to, and actually someone I had helped and supported is who ran an autism center. So all these veils were being lifted, and um, Jeffrey Weinstein, all the other all people, no, Harvey Weinstein, sorry, Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> someone I was close to and had actually supported, turned out to be one of these people, oh, a lying, wow. narcissist, sex predator, and it actually had actually abused someone, a younger girl I had introduced to his autism center. And again, like, what can I say? Thank God for my self-compassion practice. And so my experience, not only with myself, but also all the women at the center who had been involved, really just showed me that the Me Too movement is a self-compassion movement, <laughs> right? It's women saying, hey, we're, we're going to protect ourselves. This is not okay. For years and years, women just kind of had to accept it. Well, I don't want to say anything. You know, I don't want to harm people. I don't want to speak up and maybe it'll just kind of go away or I have no choice or that's just the way men are, right? And I think women, and again, it's not just me. It's women around the globe are waking up and saying, no, it's not okay. You know, and we're going to stand up and we're going to speak up and we're going to do something about this and stop the harm. And so as I went through that experience with myself, I just really realized, again, this is fear, self-compassion. But I noticed that some of the women who were involved in the situation, they had a hard time getting angry. It had been so socialized out of them. So other women were fine with it. But some women, again, their first thought was, again, well, maybe I'll harm people. I don't want to get anyone in trouble or you know, it's like they couldn't access their anger. And so I i was working with my own anger because believe me, I had a lot of it. I was enraged. So I was working with my own anger. You might say I had to work the other side of it, like how to infuse my own anger with tenderness Mm -hmm. so that my anger was effective and was harnessed toward preventing harm as opposed to just causing harm by just, you know, exploding in people. And other people, maybe they had the tender side there, but they couldn't access their anger and that's not effective either. And I really saw in this real-life situation how all of us, as we kind of owned our tender side, you know, we didn't want to harm anyone. We didn't want to ruin anyone's life. We didn't want to hate anyone. And we also needed the tenderness to hold our own pain. We'd all been duped and harmed. That this fierce energy, I I like to call it mama bear energy. And women know what mama bear is, right? I don't know if you two have children, but if anyone... Tries to harm your kids, you watch out this incredible yeah, fierceness sure. that women, I mean, men also have it, but I think women have a special access to this mama bear energy. And we use it for others, but we can use it for ourselves as well. And so that that was really the most immediate impetus for me writing this book, especially for women. It all really just came together. The
0: whole gender role stereotype fascinates me. And you kind of have to untangle like this constant self criticism or self-judgment that we put ourselves that we need to be whether you have an autistic child or not you need to be a good mom and you need to be a good friend and a good partner and a good business owner for the case of many of our audience and then if you're not in your own eyes you're just like there's this self-flagellation that is just awful so I love the power and the fierce side of describing self-compassion in the way that you have. I think it's a very powerful concept.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And also what it gives us is our validation, our sense of worth, is it so dependent on other people luckiness? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And again, it doesn't mean that we become selfish and narcissistic and we just say, screw you, you're not going to do what I want. It doesn't work that way. Right. So the more compassion can flow inward, actually, the more it can also flow outward. And by the way, women are socialized to do this. If you look at all the gender role literature, women are valued, they're liked more when they say yes, when they're agreeable, when they meet other people's needs. They aren't liked as much when they say, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I need to meet my own needs. And so in some ways, it's kind of a political act because women have to say, what's more important, that other people like me or that I like myself? right? Because other people's approval, it comes and goes. We can't control it. And also, I hate to say it, but it really, who does it benefit the fact that women are socialized to be so sacrificing? You know, it also helps maintain hierarchy and power and equality. But it's not to say that therefore we're all going to become angry and just, you know, again, that we stop caring for others. It's all about balance. Really, the key is balance. I like to call it caring force, right? It's forceful, it's powerful, We harness the force and the power for love, for good, for protection, for well-being. And when we do that and we don't forget that, then it's not going to be damaging or destructive.
1: One of the concepts that you tease out in your book is this idea of authenticity and the role that that plays in self-compassion. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that.
2: Yes, well, absolutely. Again, it's a little bit related to what I was just talking about. And I actually do, it used to do research with a woman named Susan Harder, where that's what we looked at, the ability to be authentic, to say what you really mean, to speak up, to have your own voice, and is often for many people contingent on social approval. We're afraid to speak up. We're afraid to be authentic because we're afraid people won't like us if we do. And by the way, this is the kicker. We have to acknowledge that it's kind of true. (laughs) Some people may not like you as much if you're authentic. And so what happens is you just start changing your value system, right? Again, what's true for me? What's important for me? Is this making me happy? That's actually what allows us to be authentic because instead of our self-esteem being contingent on the approval of others, it kind of becomes unconditional. Whether I fail whether people like me or not, whether I lose that way they want, whether I achieve my goals. The bottom line is I am worthy as I am. But again, it doesn't mean complacency because of course, I want to be a loving person. I want good relationships. I want to achieve my goals. I want all that, not because I have to get it in order to be worthy, but simply because I care about myself. You know, just like with a child, We love our children unconditionally. They can screw up in all sorts of ways. You know, we still love them, but we want the best for them. So we try to teach them and help them and, you know, give them what they need and help them achieve their goals. So actually, that's the thing about being socialized as a woman, because we actually learn the skills of how to support and care for and nurture others very well. And it is a skill set. This is a skill set that women have. We know how to, you know, navigate conflict how to be supportive, how to listen when the other person needs some space, but also really be in there when the other person really needs some hands-on active help. We know how to do it. We've been taught how to do it. And so in a way, it's almost easier for us to be self-compassionate, even though we're we're taught we don't deserve, we shouldn't be selfish. We have to be self-giving to others. Once we get over that little hump, that lie really, then we have this tool. Oh yeah, I can do this. I know how to speak to myself in a supportive way. Of course I want to achieve my goals. Just like I want my child to achieve their goals. It's really a mindset shift. And then once we make that shift in mindset, everything just kind of starts unfolding much more easily. It it all has to start from that
0: awareness of like, look what I'm doing to myself. Like there needs to be separation space to like witness the voice talking to yourself, right?
2: which is the mindfulness. A so mindfulness, which people have heard a lot of in common culture, that's at the core of self-compassion, actually. Unless you have that awareness, as you said, unless you're aware, how am I treating myself? What's the effect on me? Would I say this to a friend mm-hmm. I cared about? You know? mm-hmm. And also validating our pain. I mean, so often we're so busy. We're just you know, going from one task to the next and we don't even pause and say, this is really hard. I need, I need a little TLC right now. So that awareness Mm -hmm. is key, as you say. Some
0: of the conversations that we're having in our community who are typically wellness entrepreneurs, who are women primarily, who have families and, you know, we're doing that so-called second shift and are also trying to run a business. Mm -hmm. And there is such a fear within them about doing everything and burning out. Yes. They often hold back and stay smaller than I think that they want to be or could be because they're so Mm -hmm. afraid of getting sick and burning out. And I know you've got a whole section in there, but I would just love to hear your thoughts about, I think your phrase is like, it's so lopsided how we care for others and not for ourselves. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Right. Yeah. So if our compassion, our energy, our work is always aimed outward and we don't turn the lens of that support and care inward, we will burn out. Absolutely. It right? will become drained. I like to joke, it's like there's a species of spider. The babies are born and they actually feed off the mother's carcass as they grow older. I mean, it can feel that way as a woman sometimes, right? We're just always giving, always doing, and we don't give to ourselves. you know. And there's a lot of talk of self-care and self-care absolutely is crucial. But we have to remember it's not just behavioral self-care. Part of it, it's important. So we take time for ourselves. We get the rest we need. We try to eat better. We try to exercise right. But even more important is emotional self-care, right? So every time you beat yourself up, you criticize yourself, you're shaming yourself, you are harming yourself emotionally. And especially if you start beating yourself and criticizing yourself for not getting enough done or, you know, not being productive enough, then you're actually adding to your stress, making it harder for yourself to get what you need to get done. Uh, And so there's a lot of research now showing that self-compassion is very good for reducing burnout, reducing stress, reducing anxiety, reducing those feelings of depletion. Because again, first of all, just simply saying, wow, I'm so stressed. This is so hard right now. What do I need? What do I need to care for myself? Just even that five-second pause makes a huge difference. And then, again, because if you care about yourself, sometimes that means instead of always saying yes to others, it gives you more strength to say, I'm sorry, I would love to help you, but I can't right now. Very important to be, yes, and the other person may like you a little bit less. They probably don't get over it, though. But, you know, we aren't so worried about pleasing others. It's like, I'm sorry. No, I have to say, I'm pretty good at saying no. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know, like I say, a skill. Maybe,
2: for me, it is a skill. But part of that is because I think because of my self-compassion practice, I'm really not so dependent on other people liking me. Again, it's always a balance. If any of these tapes, because for women especially, the tape starts running, oh, does that mean I'm going to be mean? I'm going to be the B word? No, (laughs) it's just a matter of balance, you know, being fierce and tender, being caring toward up to yourself and others. It's both. It's not instead of. It really helps people reduce burnout and also just deal with the stress of it's almost impossible to be a human being in this moment in history. Ouch. Can we kind of hold the pain of that?
0: Yeah. Hmm. yeah Yeah. it's so true this term self-care I kind of have a love-hate relationship and Uh I've slowly starting to to change the definition. And Mm -hmm. to me, it was always like, take a bubble bath with candles. Like that was self-care. And over the years, I've realized it's more about how I talk to myself, how I physically take care of my body each and every day, what I say in my mind when I look at myself in the mirror, even, like those kind of things. And I think now having read your book, it's like, oh, that's self-compassion. Yes. Right? And that word works better for me than self-care because I just think of pink and champagne and yeah. bubbles and like, ah, you right. know, and it just doesn't work. so.
2: And also, by the way, sometimes self-care means, if, if self-care is what do I need right now to be happy and to alleviate my suffering, which is like really what compassion is, concerned with the alleviation of suffering. Sometimes that means you really got to get off your butt and do something different.
0: Right. You yeah. know, take that's action. A, that's,
2: yeah. you know, yes. that, that's that fierce mama bear side. You really need to take action. Sometimes you need to go left. Sometimes you need to go right. But you have to be willing to ask yourself, what is it that I need? And Mm -hmm. that's self-compassion.
1: I love that because that's really bringing mindfulness back into it. Because there are times in our lives where, to me, being self-compassionate and caring for oneself means being ambitious and taking chances and pushing Mm -hmm. harder. Because you deserve the chance to see what happens if you follow through with something. And I love thinking about it that way because I think we are socialized as women to think that self-care and self-compassion means like backing off exclusively.
2: Yes. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I talk about it as yin and yang sometimes. I like it because it gets away from masculine and feminine yeah. because yin and yang are energies, that mm-hmm. are universal energies, all people have. So the yin is more the soft, receptive, yielding energy and the yang is more the powerful, forceful, action-oriented energy. From the position of Chinese philosophers, ill health is defined by having an imbalance between yin and yang. And if you look at gender role socialization, it's designed to make us unhealthy. It doesn't allow men to be tender or to have their yin energy, and it doesn't allow women to be fierce or have their yang energy. And so that's why we really need to say, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not going along with the program anymore. You know, I'm going to balance it within myself. And then the really important thing, as well, is that it's not just about oneself. It seems like it. The word self is in there. But really, once you give yourself compassion, this kind of connected stance, it's less self focused. And it also means that we need to take action to change the world. It's mm-hmm. not like you, you know, you throw some self-compassionate, I don't know, busy, burnt out nurses and like, you don't have to change that system. No, you also need to change the system. It has to be aimed inward and outward for mm-hmm. this change to be effective, sustainable, really.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I think that's such a great reminder. And there's so much black and white thinking, like I have to be this or this. And I think just to mm-hmm. like, what you're saying just reminds me of that is like, there's always like a third option there, right? Like, what is yeah. that third option that you're not considering? You don't that's have right. to be completely victimized and paralyzed and angry at the, how the world operates. And then you don't have to be like super angry, taking action. And, you know, like there's like a balance and that's your mama bear energy, I guess.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all about balance. Sometimes I feel like a broken record talking about balance, but it's just because it's true, you know, and the mind, the mind tends to polarize. Actually, it's not our fault. It's part of the way the mind, the brain conceptualizes things in duality you know, if you really to mm-hmm. take this far enough, we're getting towards like non-dual states and our mind can't process. So it's mm-hmm. it's normal. We shouldn't judge ourselves for it. But the more we can remember to have balance, to have the yin and the yang and the fierceness and the tenderness, really just the healthier and more stable we'll be. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit about your take on anger because that comes up a bit in your book. And as an activist myself, I I have a complicated relationship to anger, but also yes. an acknowledgement that there is this kind of back and forth between being powerful and angry, and then kind of slipping back into more self-focused, like almost meditative practice. And yeah. I just would love to hear your advice for others who are in that space, because we live in a time right now of tremendous upheaval. And we have a lot of activists who listen to us and a lot of people trying to make new things in the world that didn't exist mm-hmm. and make changes. And so- And there's
2: a lot to be angry at as well. <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> it's okay to be angry. Yeah. Yeah. And and I have to say, I don't want to come off as someone who's really figured out anger. And I'm and one of the reasons things I talk about in this book is my own very complicated relationship with anger. So the way I'm wired is I've kind of wired for reactive anger, right? Even though I meditate and all the years of practice, it's just the way my brain works. And so I always struggled with reactive anger. And even though I, I didn't beat myself up for it, With my self-compassion and mindfulness practice, I always kind of thought, you know, well, something I should really get over or learn to, you know, to work with. So I'm not, this reactive anger isn't there. And then when I started to really think about fierce self-compassion and fierce mama bear energy, I realized that in many ways, this is my power source, right? This kind of, this ability to say, no, it's not okay, or this should be different. Mm -hmm. And it really motivates us. So there are a lot of very useful functions to anger. It gives us energy, just even physiologically. It's just like if you're angry, you're like, I'm so angry. It's like, I'm so angry. <laughs> you know? It energizes us. It focuses us. It clearly communicates something's wrong. It's, you know, Often anger is caused by some sort of injustice. It communicates to yourself and also to the other person that something's wrong. And this is really important. We don't want to not use the tool of anger. Anger can be constructive or destructive. What's the difference? Constructive anger is when the anger is harnessed toward alleviating suffering, right? Preventing injustice, saying no, stopping harm. Anger becomes destructive when it's aimed at a person. It becomes personal. You're bad. You're evil. You shouldn't have done this right? And that's really, really the difference. As long as anger is focused on preventing harm, it can be harnessed for good. The moment we just get lost in us versus them and hating people or, you know, harming people through the expression of our anger, we aren't careful about how we express our anger. Then again, you're undermining compassion. A very easy way to think of it is it focused on the person or the behavior. And by the way, that goes with ourself as well. This fear self-compassion says to ourselves, no, that behavior is not okay. You need to stop that. That's harming you or that's harming someone else. It doesn't mean I have to hate myself, right? So just focusing on the behaviors that are causing harm, not really judging anyone, self or other, unhuman or not worthy of care and respect. Now, having said that, remember, it's hard. And I'm the first to admit it. I get it wrong all the time but I'm really good at apologizing. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Another skill.
0: Yeah. This is better
2: than nothing, you
0: know? (laughs) So I think I totally agree with everything you said in your book, you mentioned or referenced the Kavanaugh hearing a couple from a couple years ago and Mm -hmm. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford having to sit there and not be able to express her anger. Yes. Because absolutely she would be the angry woman and not be believed while Mm. Kavanaugh sat there with a red face, steaming pounding his fist like a child, having a tantrum, and ultimately he won. And so it's just like, I'm so angry that she couldn't express her anger in that moment. She had to play a role because we believe women don't do
2: that. That's right. Yeah. And so here's the thing. I mean, I wish I could say that again, I wish I could say that if we claim our fierce side, that everyone will love us and there won't be problems. It's true. For instance, the research shows very clearly that an angry man is more persuasive, and an angry woman is less persuasive. So we, we also have to be, you know, careful in, in terms of how we express ourselves. And if it's not going to help, we don't want to express our anger in a way that's going to turn people off or make us less able to make change. So even though mm-hmm. it's not fair, we do in a way have to work within the system that we're in. Mm-hmm. We want to be wise about this. But a lot of this is internal. We don't want to internalize that prejudice. We don't want to judge ourselves for mm-hmm. getting angry. Maybe it's going to harm me if I express my anger the way I would like to. And so I'm going to, but it doesn't mean you also have to just go the other extreme and be a doormat either. We have to work twice as hard as men do because all the stereotypes are that men are competent and they're persuasive and they're intelligent. And it, the system is rigged in men's favor. Mm-hmm. So woman in this system We do have to kind of play the game. At the same time, we have to really be committed to changing the system because as we raise our sons and daughters, as we start to gain more power in the system, I think the more we're aware of how the system is rigged against us, especially rigged against women's fierce side, then we can help change the culture at the same time that we work within it. Luckily, the research shows that, again, one of the things that helps, you might say, offset the distaste people have for women's anger is if you combine the yin and the yang, if you combine the fierceness and tenderness. So for instance, people don't really like powerful women, powerful, competent bosses. Women have this perception too, by the way. It's scary, but Mm -hmm. it's internalized. A powerful, competent boss, well, she must not be very nurturing, and therefore I don't like her because I like nurturing women. They dislike women who are competent. Look at Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry, but that's partly what happened. Yeah. But they also show, and you can see all the political candidates. They know the research. They were doing this. If you also show your tender side, you make explicitly, you know, oh, so, how, you know, you have to do this in your job, but how, how are your kids, right? So if you combine, obviously, more of the tender side, then that pe- makes people think, okay, well, she's also tender. Okay, well, then I still like her. So I think it was Joan Hasting calls it gender judo. It's like, you got to be really tricky and do this judo, but it can be done. We don't just have the choice of being nice, sweet doormats. We can also be powerful. We have to pay a little more attention to outwardly expressing our tender side, our yin side, so to speak. I don't like calling it feminine because that really does a disservice to men, but the yin side, we have to also display that obviously, but we do have that option. But then when you're home, and you're alone, and you don't have to press anyone. Let yourself get as pissed <laughs> off as you want to be, and don't <laughs> judge yourself for it. Yeah. But if, again, the more you can aim it at the harm, at the behavior, at the situation, as opposed to people, the better. Because if you start getting into the, they're evil and I hate them, then that just harm and harms yourself in terms of your own blood pressure and your own mental health as well. So. I have a really hard time with everything you're saying. I agree with you
1: completely, but I feel like, <laughs> yeah. like it, there is that balance between kind of buying into the system and working strategically within it versus wanting to change it. And I think that that's a tricky place to be, right? Because it obviously is. we all want to create change with what we're doing in our lives. And I've learned myself that sometimes even in a leadership role, if I'm not publicly in that role, I can affect more change, which is infuriating. Yes. And there's like this tension, right? Between- do you want to make that shift or do you actually want to just like make this immediate change right now and be more effective at your short-term goals? And I think that any of us who are leaders as women are constantly navigating those
2: conversations
1: and it's really hard not to be angry you ha- that you have to think about that.
2: You know, and like I said, I wish I had it all figured out. I would be absolutely lying <laughs> if I said I did. Every woman has her own experience, and own skills. I suppose what I'm hoping to offer this book, and I really I dedicate the book to women, <laughs> because I really, I do hope it's like something I can offer, is these are tools in our toolbox that we have, that we can develop. Some of these tools our society has told us we shouldn't develop. And so I have actually I have practices, I have exercises, I have meditations, I have things people can do to try to develop these tools. But each woman needs to use her own wisdom in the particular situation she's in to try it out, and also needs to be given the permission to fail miserably. (laughs) I also like to joke that the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. In other words, we'll still get it wrong. I'm still, I get it wrong all the time. I don't have it all together, far from it. As we try to make these changes, we'll get it wrong. Things won't go our way. So we'll just, okay, we get knocked down. But the thing is, do we just give up? Or do we just get back up again and keep trying and try to rebalance and try again and try something different? Instead of the goal being to get it right, the goal becomes to open your heart. The goal becomes to have this open-hearted stance where we care about ourselves and others. We care about fairness. We care about justice. We care about doing good in the world. And that actually becomes our goal. It's not that getting it right isn't important, but even more important is what's the state of our heart as we're going through this struggle? Yeah. And then that will carry us forward. And it, it may be in, you know, our granddaughter's generation that things finally get sorted out. If we're still around by then, you know, all we can do is do our best. I love it. Jenny, <laughs>
0: what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. i may maybe just coming to some of those realizations. Like I've still felt like it's this generation's responsibility. Like I don't want to say my daughter like this, I don't want to pass this legacy on to her. And I'm, sure. you know, I wrestle with a fury around that, that someone who really thought this wouldn't apply to me and has had the harsh realization in adulthood that gender dynamics lay out. Yeah. But I mean, I, I grew up hearing you can do anything. Yeah. Every available option is open to you, was totally nurtured in that space by lots of teachers and coaches and mentors. And then to have mm-hmm. the sudden realization over and over that actually the game is rigged still, right? Like I think it is still rigged. That's yeah. that's a hard place to be in. It makes me furious to think of handing it over to my own little girl. Like and
2: that. let's, let's do navigate. our best so that's not the case. And yeah. it makes me, you know, as Gloria Steinem said, I think the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. Yeah, right. that's right. It's true. So what are our options? We do our best. We do our best. But mm-hmm. I hope to be able to offer with this book is that it, it's also an inside job. It's not just an inside job. And it's not just an outside job. Right, We have to tend to how we're relating to ourselves, including these energies of fierceness and tenderness. Are we honoring them? Are we celebrating them? Are we balancing them? And also how we relate to others. We just do our best. We don't really have, I wish I could snap my fingers and say it was all fair and just racial justice and gender justice and there's a wealth inequality. That's wishful thinking. And we don't want to Mm -hmm. be caught in that either. Yeah. For sure. Here's the nice thing that I find. So, so you said a lot of your listeners are social activists. Yeah. Well, this is again, why the fierce and the tender self-compassion is so important because the tender self-compassion is really what allows us to hold pain and grief. So there's anger, but underneath that anger is an ocean of grief, Mm -hmm. of hurt. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, if you are really to try to hold the reality of what's happening in this world or what's happened to us, it feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need the open heart. That's where we need that tender acceptance. That's where the mindfulness comes in, the opening to what is right. And that's where, you know, Sharon Salzberg says the heart is wide as the world. We need to allow our hearts to open as wide as the world to be able to hold the pain of the world. And it's big. It's really big, so we don't want to use the fierce energy as a cover of not opening to the pain of that. But we also don't want to be swallowed up by the pain. And so these these are tools that we there. There's very. I've got a whole section of my book, the tools of self-compassion. They're tools that we that we can access, that we can develop, that we can strengthen, and that we can use as needed, moment by moment. It's going to change many times throughout the day. But again, we have to ask a question, what tool do I need? If you don't ask yourself the question, how are you going to give yourself the answer? There are tools. That's the good news. It's not hopeless. There's a lot of stuff you can do.
0: I think that's one of the powerful things about your book is that it's definitely rooted in research and science and academia, but it's peppered with personal stories. And it's like, here's a tool to try to help you navigate this. So it's this beautiful blend of all three things, which is rare. So oh, I loved it. You. It was a great job. All right. Should we move into join Hustle, Jenny? Yes. So Kristen, at the end of every
1: episode, we ask our guests to share a joy. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now that perhaps could be shared with our listeners and also a tool that can help them hustle and grow in their careers or business.
2: Okay. I got to say... I'm going to say my son, but it's not like that my son's so lovely. It's that my son is finally driving and I don't have to <laughs> drive him anywhere, everywhere. I have to say freedom. Like freedom you know? yeah. It's like we have a, a house in Elgin and it's like 45 minutes away. I would drive him all the time. And now he drives himself. It's like, bye-bye, drive carefully, see you later. <laughs> like so that the happy time, dance that's giving me a lot of joy, just the freedom of, yeah, he's mm-hmm. starting to, he's autistic. I don't know if he would ever drive. You know, the fact that he's driving and driving well is just bringing me a lot of joy. That's the really lovely thing. And I also just got my second vaccination. So that's going to slip two in here because there's good news. (laughs) My son's driving and I just got my second vaccination. So that's great. Okay. And then a tool. And actually, I can't lead you through the entire tool probably because of time. But there's a practice we developed called the self-compassion break which research shows is is really effective. It's kind of like hitting the reset button on your computer. So next time your computer jams, in other words, the computer of your mind jams up and you need to hit reset, you can take a self-compassion break. And basically what it is, is it's just calling in the three components of self-compassion in an intentional way. The first is mindfulness, being aware of what's happening, being aware that you're hurting, that you're struggling, right? You're kind of validating what you're going through, really asking yourself what you need. Second is common humanity. Remember that you aren't alone. You fall into this illusion of thinking that everyone else is living a, a perfect, normal, you know, problem-free life, and it's just me who's failed, or it's just me who's fallen, or it's just me, whatever it's happening. So when you just remember, consciously remember that nothing's wrong with you, this is part of being human, you aren't alone. This is actually helps empower you when we feel our connection to others. And then finally, just kindness, right? Just ask yourself, what would I say to a good friend I cared about who was going through the exact same situation I'm going through, right? And then say that to yourself. You can do this in writing. You can just do this verbally. You know, can you do it in three minutes? It doesn't take, you can do it while you're actually going to the bathroom at work. you take a little self-compassion break as you take a bathroom break or a coffee break. If you try it out, you'll see it actually does help reset you and reorient you. It just really helps when things are difficult. And all these practices and more are on my website at selfcompassion.org. You can find them there. That's great.
0: Kristen, thank you so much for the time you spent with us. Super great conversation. Love the book. We will certainly help you promote it when it is alive out there in the world. And really enjoyed this. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Go well. Thank
0: you, Kristen.